Welcome to the Gym Owners Business Podcast with Mel Tempest. The Gym Owners Business Podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Thomas Plummer, MyZone, Creative Fitness Marketing, and All Smiles Creative. The Gym Owners Business Podcast is part of the Gym Owners Business Network, which is the industry's go-to online hub designed to better service the needs of fitness business owners. The Gym Owners Business Network is currently finalising foundation memberships, so if you're a fitness business that would like to gain valuable and extensive exposure to the Australian and global fitness industries, then head to gymownersbusinessnetwork.net to find out more. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Gym Owners Business Podcast and Network. Today's podcast is sponsored by Evolt Body Imaging and MyZone Wearable Technology. Today we are discussing a very sensitive subject, obesity. We discuss on our podcast today the lack of smart education on hand for the gym business industry. And I call it the gym business industry because that's who we are. Irrespective of the size of the clubs and the nature of the content that's within our clubs, we are the gym business industry. And we are in business of getting people healthy first and fit second. And let's be frank, a fit person in 1999 is not the same as a fit person in 2019. Now we've got two conversations to be had on the topic today. And the first is the lack of intelligent education and the second is the stigma attached to individuals affected by excess weight. But first I'd like to introduce you to my panel. And on today's panel I have Michael Mantel, Matt O'Neill and Jamie Hayes. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And how are we all today? Good, good. Excited. It's Matt O'Neill, excited by this topic, so thanks for having me. You're very welcome. All right, so let's get our discussion underway. Now, we know that obesity is on the rise rapidly, and our healthcare systems are under extreme strain. We know that the fitness industry is also growing at a rapid rate. And we know that we have, um, through no fault of their own, underprepared trainers starting in the industry. And we still have a lot of old school gym business owners, yet we still have this significant growth in chronic illness and weight issues. So I'm going to throw the question out to you, Matt. Where have we gone wrong as an industry? What are we not doing in gyms to counteract such issues as growth in obesity and growth in chronic illness? Yeah, that, look, that's a big question, isn't it? What's going wrong? And, and I guess I want to preface the answer to that just, just with a couple of stats. A new report out last week, um, 900,000 people, this is here in Australia, you can uh, accelerate that for other countries, um, 900,000 people became obese in the last three years. You know, in 10 years, it's going to be 40% of the population, not just overweight, but obese, costing us like $11 billion. So it's really, really serious. And everybody's trying to nut out how do we actually tackle this. And I think the big problem is that um, it's a, in the fitness industry, it can be a real mismatch. Um, you know, clients want quick results and often, you know, trainers or salespeople might jump in and say, yeah, you can lose all that weight. You want to lose 10 kilos, 20 kilos. Then it's that sort of promise there. So the expectations can be out of whack 
straight away. And to give you an idea, and this is probably the last stat I want to share, um, there's a study in the UK that looked at 9,000 people uh, across health records and they found the chance of reaching normal weight for obesity. So let's say if we're going to help somebody lose weight from being obese to become normal weight, after a year there was a, a 1 in 100 chance of that happening for women and, and half that for men, so less than half percent. So I think what we've got to acknowledge from the start is this is really complex. There's eating behaviour, exercise habits, there's plateaus, motivation, willpower, beliefs, family and friends, you know, the relationship with the trainer. And I think we just haven't acknowledged that complexity. And in a way, we've, we've gone into that quick fix where we say, we're going to get you a result. And then people get a bit, you know, they either get annoyed, frustrated or really pissed with that over-promising. So I think that over-promising has a stepping back and looking for a more comprehensive approach. And I think if there's one thing we need to do it right is to say this is complex and we need to look at nutrition, exercise, mindset, mental health, all those sorts of things and not think that we know it all. Um, so, Jamie, what's your thoughts on Matt's answer? Well, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. Um, I don't think there's any obligation on the fitness industry to actually meet the needs of overweight and obese people. And, and I've got five points here. And the second is, but if fitness centres want to, if they want to, they actually have an incredible opportunity to be providers of weight loss programs. And uh, it can add a brand new stream of income to fitness clubs. Uh, and God knows they need it. They're, they're all competing on price and stuff like that getting lower and lower yields and membership rates. So anything that can bring in extra income. And it can also bring in extra income for the trainers. My third point is that, and this is a key insight, just like fitness clubs license expert classes from people like Les Mills International, um, so that their instructors don't have to be experts in designing classes, uh, all they have to do is learn how to deliver those classes. Now, clubs can also offer expert weight loss programs designed by weight loss experts, let's say like Matt, but delivered by their trainers so that the trainers don't necessarily have to be nutrition experts. My vision for the, is that fitness clubs around the world can actually be the leading providers of weight loss programs, definitely here in Australia and New Zealand and, and uh, elsewhere. And ironically, even though Many dietitians are sensitive about losing clients to unregistered people on the internet. The global push for weight loss programming, you know, with the global push for weight loss programming inside the fitness industry, can create fantastic opportunities for dietitians to be involved as the experts behind those programs. So uh, I, I really think that there's an incredible opportunity. Mel, the number one most, or the number one most common reason new members and new PT clients start an exercise program is to lose weight. Uh, but unfortunately, the science does not support that. Um, you know, that uh, you know, if somebody has got some weight to lose, if they start exercising, they'll lose weight. And us accepting business on, on that basis, you know, I think uh, is questionable. But my view is that the reverse is true. Where exercise does not lead to weight loss, Weight loss leads to exercise. If you, if you can set up a weight loss program in your gym and uh, help people lose weight, whether they exercise or not, through a dietary intervention, then once they've lost weight, when they're ready, they're more likely to become exercisers. Um, and so it can be a brand, brand new source 
of additional fitness members for fitness clubs. All right, so Jamie, you're obviously saying that you know health club owners can set up successful weight loss programs within their clubs. But Michael, let me ask you a, a question. Now, you're considered an expert in behavioral science globally. Do you think that gyms unknowingly play a role in the message that they send to the media, um, their community and, and their current clients that they're not about weight loss? Oh, absolutely. First, I just want to uh, uh, tell you that I fully agree with what Jamie just said and what Matt said. The statistics on uh, overweight and obesity are beyond shocking. I just read a study today that said by 2020, that's just less than a year from now, 80%, I said 80%, right now it's 70, 80% of America, and it, it follows pretty closely in Australia, New Zealand, will be either overweight or obese. Are gyms sending a message unknowingly? Absolutely. Research that was published just a year ago or so through the American Psychological Association found that stigma at gyms are associated with negative attitudes towards the gym, maladaptive behaviors to cope with stigma, uh, internalizing a weight bias against oneself, unhealthy weight control practices. We see it in healthcare. It's not just in gyms. Um, we know that, uh, that research tells us that fitness spaces are places where those in larger bodies experience the most shaming and discrimination only next to health care. And this seriously harms their health and the business of the gym. Uh, and partly, we have folks who really don't understand obesity, let alone how to talk with someone about obesity in a non-stigmatic way, um, not using uh, words like fat or morbidly obese uh, or a chubby. And you hear this in gyms today. Perceptions about the causes of obesity on the part of staff may contribute to weight stigma and bias. Assumptions that obesity can be prevented by self-control or that the individual is non-compliant explains failure. That creates difficulty. And when people perceive this, they stay away. They do not want to walk through that door. Well, Michael, you and I both know, and I know the rest of the panel will agree with this, um, helping obese people, there are passionate people out there that do want to do it. So I need to make that message clear. But for a lot of health clubs and boutique studios, helping obese people is not cool. It's not trendy. Um, it's not what they want to do. So what I'd like to ask Jamie and Matt, what are your thoughts on Michael's response? And am I on track in saying that obesity is not, it's not a cool thing to be involved with, helping people? Mm -hmm. Matt, you, you go first. Yeah, yeah thanks, Jamie. And look, and I really like Jamie's comments earlier about um, you know, bringing experts in, you know, I'll, co I'll come back to that. And, and Michael's comments about weight stigma because it's increasingly coming up that, you know, what you could say to somebody may do more harm than good. You know, give an example of transformation challenge that if you push somebody too hard when they're not ready. And there's a concept of um, behavioural phenotypes, you know, how somebody sort of responds even to just putting somebody on the scales, whether they have a good or bad experience. And you might know the trigger, which is, not to put somebody on the scales if you pick up that vibe there as well. So I think we do have to change the narrative um, in terms of how we start talking to clients and make them feel welcome. And that's probably a level of empathy 
um, that comes into it as well. And, um, I, you know, I probably think the future there is trying to shift from saying, like I said earlier, that we have the total solution to actually then building more of that solution around the trainers because, um, you know, I've, I've operated with, with, with big clubs and small clubs and PTs and, and, and put people through about 25,000 people through a program where I sort of put together the diets. And I'm jealous that a trainer is right there at the coalface and can eyeball somebody and motivate them and make them accountable because it's harder to do that remotely. And I think that eye-to-eye accountability will be really, really useful, but it's got to take the right language where somebody feels like, oh, you get me, you know my real-life challenges. And sometimes if somebody's, you know, a trainer's fit and healthy and ripped and shredded and rock hard, you know, you've got to work harder to create that empathy with the client. And once you've got their, you know, they think you get them, then you can start slowly trying to change that mind shift uh, as it goes through. But I, I think it'll be the case when you get that expert advice because um, often trainers will call me and say, my, my client's plateauing, my client's got an allergy, my client has this medical condition, and I think that's where things can trip up. So integrating more support for that I think will be really, really useful. Jamie, your I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Jamel, I know you're asking, Jamie, I just want to quickly comment on one thing. Um, even in this podcast, we hear it here. Now, you know, Mel, I have the most respect in the world for you. You use the expression obese people or an obese person. And what we have to put across is using people first language. In other words, someone, a person with obesity or someone who's affected by obesity, but we don't want to make it about the disease, obese people. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> That's okay. So then what I'll do is, okay, so you know what, Michael, that comes back to education. So um, my question was going to be to, to Matt, but obviously in, any one of you can answer this. So what type of education do we need to see gyms take on board to change the way that we are speaking to our community? I mean, it's a bigger picture, isn't it, really? We need to be educating our trainers. So what type of education would you like to see on board in the clubs? Mel, can I jump in there? Yes. I, I actually think it, it, it starts with um, a guiding philosophy of if that club wants to appeal to the overweight people, they have to be like Planet Fitness in the States. They've grown hugely because they are a no-judgment zone. And I don't know if you start with education or you start with recruiting. Now, Mel, you're a female. Have you ever walked into a women's clothing store and within seconds you've got that look of judgment from that you know, skinny, good-looking uh, sales assistant and you didn't feel comfortable and you felt you know, like, I'll find an excuse to get the hell out of that store. Oh, and, absolutely, um, Jamie. I've walked into a, a dress shop after I've taken the class and because I'm in my workout gear and because the shop that I've walked into, um, the clothing items are a little bit more expensive than walking into a standard shop, of course, somebody's judged me straight away. So I certainly understand where you're coming from. And you feel, and you feel like walking out. And, and so I think we've got to recruit people who have that no judgment zone on them. Many of our weight loss coaches, and I'm sure with, with uh, Matt as well, they're on their own weight loss journey too. And we say the very first thing, you, you know, they might have 10 or 20 kilos to lose. And we say, share your weight loss journey is one of the very first things in, you know, in building rapport and getting to know. You know, you might say, here's me before and after and I'm still on the journey and people can immediately relate to that, you know. Uh, but in our centres, we don't have any mirrors either to, as that negative reinforcement. So 
recruiting people that have that um, openness, that you know, no judgment zone about them, is absolutely crucial. And to uh, segue from Michael's comments, you know, I think we really got to watch our, you know, our language because that that language may have you know, sort of meta meanings to those people and, and trigger you know negative responses. And, and ultimately, we want to help these people. Oh, and you know, actually, I'm in the business not just helping people, but helping them by getting them to pay for programs because we find that the people who pay for programs pay attention and get better results. All right. And so I, and I would just add. Yes, Mark. I would add about what we, what we need to be doing. Number one, we do need a great deal of education. I think it's difficult to hire people who are judgment-free. And by the way, even Planet Fitness's judgment-free zone has a lot of controversy to it because they keep people keep pointing out it's not judgment-free. They may look it, but there are indications where even judgment-free zone Planet Fitness isn't as pure as it like, would like to be. We need to do number one, avoid stigmatizing or blaming words. Let's stop talking about, God forbid, fat people uh, uh, and, and obese people. Let's use people-first language. Let's be mindful of the approach when discussing weight. Can we talk about your weight today? How do you feel about your weight? What words would you like me to use when we talk about weight? I think gyms need to implement training. We'll call it sensitivity training um, for staff who are working with people of size, including those who work uh, with bariatric programs. Uh, If your gym happens to be successful in uh, connecting with those. Um, education sessions on obesity is a multifactorial disease. Uh, maybe even presentations by volunteers who are willing to share their own weight loss experience. We need to examine Jim's education and marketing material. I just saw a picture of that Soul Cycle, very famous gym here in America, uh, is pushing CBD oil. But the picture that they have is a magnificent picture I don't know, 10, 12 enormously fit people. The idea of national conventions coming up. They show thousands of trainers. There's not one person who is is living with obesity. So we need to look at the marketing material. We need to educate, inform, and be the example. Discuss obesity as a disease, which is is what it is. Um, And when the front desk people know how to look at their own assumptions, are they comfortable working with people of all shapes and sizes? Um, are they helpful and sensitive in working with folks like this? Then I think we have a, a way to, we have a place to go. One other last thing I'll say very quickly. How about a chair where someone of size can sit? Have you ever tried, have you ever seen some the chairs in some gyms in the waiting area or in a restaurant or, or, or the dress shop we are talking about? If someone who's living with obesity or affected by obesity can't sit down, can't take a shower, the towel doesn't fit, the toilet is too small, it's still going to leave the gym. Lastly, to say, well, we are, we, we are, you know, we meet the Americans with Disability Act. Are you implying that someone who has obesity is disabled? <laughs> Good luck throwing that gym. It won't work. All right. So, so Michael, let me just come back to the, the education um, part of this. Now, anybody on the panel can answer this question below. Now, do you think that this type of education should be compulsory for every person who registers to work as a fitness professional 
Or do you think that the education should be part of the club's onboarding with new staff when employed? Because this is the only way that we are going to change the way that people look at um, this issue. It, it's all about education, but how are we going to make it change? Now, anybody of you, any one of you can answer this question. Okay, Matt. Here you go. Sorry, thanks. Thanks, Sarah. I'll jump in there. And, that, and I think the word education, and, and, and I think what's been really useful in this podcast, and I'm learning as well, is that the words we use are quite powerful. You know, those mantras, those motivational statements we use and choosing those carefully. Even the word education, and for me that conjures up um, images of knowing about metabolism, knowing about calorie burning, maybe knowing more about diets and that sort of thing. And I don't think that's where it's at. I think it's sort of the education on the on the behavioural implications of what we do there. And obviously, I mean, for every gym or fitness centre, it's probably a case of thinking, what is our brand you know, what is our, our voice? Who do we appeal to? And, I, and if you take that to the individual trainer level, um, you know, for years I sort of ask a trainer, are you a, a nurture trainer or a torture trainer? Um, and I think people will probably get what I mean there. And, and part of that's giving tough love and accountability, but also being there to, to have that empathy uh, and understanding for it. So is it a direction of empathy and understanding or is it a direction of that real, you know, we're here to flog you and do hard sessions for that. So I think it's probably that strategic direction of saying we're going to change that along the way or and like Jamie said bring in people and staff that could maybe take the lead on weight management that really really get it um, and maybe even outsource some of those roles and responsibilities as well because then over time the, the words start to change and then people go this is a great supportive environment to be and, and bottom line that's great great for business. Um, uh, and just something very quickly I want to add is then I think this goes beyond the staff, say, at a fitness centre or club to anybody that's in the life of a gym member, um, you know, whether they're supportive or not. And I think we've got to really harness social networks to have people be supportive. So when somebody goes home, they're their wife or their partner or their flatmate or their friends are able to be brought into that network and that as well. And that's an area I'm, I'm quite passionate and looking at with technology of how do we actually help people become buddies and cheerleaders rather than saboteurs and hecklers. And I think if we just work towards being a buddy or a cheerleader, that's going to have a real positive result. And I think technology is going to be exciting for really getting that approach to work in the future. Michael or Jamie, would you like to comment? Yeah. Well, I'll just say that to answer your question and um, – and I think Matt is really at the cutting edge of some of that education. But I, I don't think that we need to make it compulsory that everybody who works in the fitness industry needs to be education, educated in weight management. But they should understand the basics of weight management and healthy eating. Um, and uh, because some of them may have no desire to coach people on weight loss. Uh, but just to paraphrase from Michael, they should absolutely understand that their behaviours and their words can make a huge difference to the response. And Mel, I want to say that uh, we, I think the fitness industry can also think outside the four walls. We have weight loss coaches delivering weight loss programs, not inside the fitness centre, but in local medical centres, you know, on a sort of um, where there's you know, coaching people sort of face-to-face, helping people lose weight. And then when those people are ready to lose weight, you know, in a, and they're obviously in the medical centre, they're in a very safe environment, they're overseen by their doctor and, and stuff like that, and when they're ready to lose weight, uh, ready to exercise, guess where they go? You know, 
um, they can be introduced to the club you know, in an appropriate fashion and the appropriate sorts of programming. So, um, yeah, you know, I think we've got lots, lots of opportunity here. I, I, I agree. Would add. Yeah, I agree. Um, I just wanted to move on to the next question, and I would love an, um, you know, an answer from each of you. Now, you know, the three of you are passionate ambassadors for healthy eating and weight loss, and you each are involved in uh, different programs. Can any of you give me an example where education has played a pivotal role in a club, in a club where members have had long-term success? So not short-term success, but long-term success. Could I throw it across to you, uh, Matt, first? Yeah, I mean, what I think of there, rather than saying, look, I think this is the the best program in the world, and and and, and Jamie's got a fantastic program, and and Michael with his work um, with, with size acceptance and and, the, and using the correct language is amazing too. I don't think there's one program that actually works on that, but I was going to talk about transformational challenges just briefly. Uh, in that, um, you know, we partner with gyms and we help them with their challenges, and I plug in for the nutrition. So I've got to watch how some of those challenges operate, and the ones that really highlight how people have changed their life and how they start to say, this is not about what I look like, this is about how I feel and my energy levels and what I can do with my body now and, and hey, I'm not turning back because this is so good. And, and that's not just a testimonial, but that's a really rich story to share with other people to show them uh, about the journey that they should take perhaps as well and, and long after the challenge. I don't think, say, the fitness series nailed it in terms of challenges, you know, eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever because some people think, oh, it's over now, <laughs> I can go back to my old ways, whereas others transform. But I think challenges are an opportunity, but I think that the ongoing for what happens in 12 months or two years may not be there. So I think there's a lot of opportunity with challenges, but then with that talk of how do you continue it, how are you changing, and of course, if somebody gets stuck along the way, like week eight or week 12, they're plateauing, then that can undo them, and that can become a bad experience. So how do you have a a plateau management strategy almost. And that's what we're trying to nut out at the moment, to try and even potentially create a framework around these events, around these transformations, not with a single program, but recognising that journey. Uh, and that's what I'd like people to know is um, if somebody's on a journey, it can go good, it can go bad, it can go either way, but how do we support somebody to give them the solution they need in their journey? Now, who knows, it could be it could be um, um, bariatric surgery or lap banding at an appropriate time, but how can you get somebody to go and talk to their doctor or get the right advice on that as part of that journey and knowing we're going to help people whether they get results with us or with a better solution along the way. We're trying to put a framework around that at the moment. Oh, sorry, I just want to jump in on the challenges because uh, we've had a lot, a lot of people, you know, who are interested in losing weight do respond to challenges. But a um, little internal secret here, we give them the option of enrolling in a long-term program, like a 12-month program. And we, we find a lot of people who inquire about challenge, it's a high percentage, as a matter of fact, the majority, uh, immediately say, ah, once they're presented with the opportunity to do a longer-term program, and we, we coach them for 12 months, um, that they take that choice. So it sort of relieves a bit of pressure, but, but they know that you know, they're going to have plateaus and all that sort of thing to work through it. And uh, so that's very important. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll let you go, Michael. Michael? I was just going to say that. 
uh, there are so many programs, and I've done specific programs for gyms on cognitive, behavioral, coaching approaches, and so forth. But what I have found more recently, in, and research backs this up, is that it's beneficial to assess the anti-weight attitudes among gym personnel and staff members, have a discussion, and then implement training sessions to educate these folks about the complex causes of obesity and to reduce your bias. And then getting rid of the stigmatizing slogans and images that are often used to promote uh, fitness facilities needs to be discontinued in favor of more health-focused campaigns. When gym staff are informed about potential barriers to exercise among individuals with overweight or obesity, including fear of judgment or inadequate equipment to support larger sizes, they, there's, a, there's a much more likelihood of having these people sign on, sign up, join the gym, and stay with the program. And one other, one other point, there are people uh, who are living with overweight and obesity who want to join a gym, and they're not joining the gym to lose weight. That they're talking to their physician, their dietitian, a health coach. They just want to come and exercise. Um, and I think being able to allow that to happen is important as well. Well, Michael, my next uh, question is actually directed at you. Now, Michael, you're currently launching Plus Size Certified in the USA. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the program? and why gym or fitness business owners should get on board and perhaps move away from what's on trend to what we need. Absolutely. Well, thanks for asking about this. This is being launched actually internationally. Uh, we have gyms and uh, even healthcare facilities uh, all over the, the world right now uh, starting to sign on. This came about as a result of the work of James King, who opened a resort in uh, the Bahamas, that is strictly for those people who are plus size. They can come, they're not there dieting, they're not there exercising, they're there simply to accept themselves unconditionally. So the, the uh, plus size certified, it's, it's a plus size certified.org. You can go and look at the website. We know that gym, people in the gym industry care about health and wellness of members. We also know that they strive to play a key role in making exercise very easily acceptable. To, the, to this vast percentage of folks who live with overweight and uh, obesity. But research tells us that stigma and shame in the fitness space creates uh, a block, an obstacle. So Plus Size Certified was developed to help gyms in their mission to connect with this population. And right now, we are so certain of the business growing impact that displaying this newly developed certification, Plus Size Certified, will have that what we're saying to people is that for some period of time going forward, we're giving you a 100% risk-free trial with no application fee. Drop the $500 application fee. Take a 30-day challenge, and all you need to do, go to plussidecertified.org, sign up. Get a complete review of the fixtures, the fittings, the accommodations, so that someone who has obesity has a place to sit. Provide your staff with our behavior science-backed training materials on acceptance, using anti-stigma language, how to respectfully meet the needs of people in the plus-size community. We provide a press release template for you to connect with local media about your new leadership role, providing emotional, physical well-being offerings. That's it. We believe that in 30 days, 
you will see increased foot traffic. If you do, great. Then we keep the $250 annual membership fee. But if you tell us nothing's changed in 30 days, we've done all these things, we'll give you the $250 back. Hmm. So we're, it's, and we know it's working because we see it working in uh, all around the country. This uh, desire to do the right thing and build business is what the, the plus size certified is all about. Um, it's about fixtures. It's about training. It's about communication. It's about knowing how to deal with the media to talk about what you have to offer. So let me throw this question then to all of you. And, and there's two questions as we're coming to the close of our podcast. So my, my first question, and feel free, anybody, to jump in. If you had every fitness professional before you in an open audience, in a large auditorium, what is the one tool that you would like to see them implement into their business or implement into their profession? Well, I'm happy to jump in there. Look, Mel, I would simply say if they want to be in the business of helping clients lose weight and if they want to increase their income, so I'm saying either the fitness club increasing their, their revenue or the, the fitness trainers and instructors increasing their personal incomes, adding weight loss coaching is a very good thing to do. And there are two pathways. You can do educational courses, and I'd like to give Matt's courses a big plug. You know, you can't go any better than, than to Matt's uh, courses and programs. Um, and you become an expert, or you license a proven program like our Dietplex program, and then market that program and your coaching to the local community. Because my belief is that the fitness industry can be the leading provider of successful weight loss programs across Australia, across New Zealand, across America. You know, we've got those centres. We do have to listen to people like Michael and have a change of mindset, you know, and particularly change of language. But with the right programming or the right courses, you know, we can absolutely make a huge difference and perhaps turn this obesity boat around. Michael? Jamie? I would say that um, regardless of the program that you have, first we have to welcome folks aside through the front door. Uh, I believe that the plus size certified is a way to do it uh, because it provides the kind of training that's necessary to deliver whatever the program will be. Uh, and as you say, there are some magnificent programs out there. The ones you just mentioned uh, are the ones to take a look at. Uh, but the environment needs to welcome and accommodate in a size-friendly, safe, emotionally supportive way. And that's where the plus size certified uh, designation on that front door says to the world, we're really ready for you. Matt? Hey, yeah, look, this is really good stuff, stuff to hear. And, and look, and Jamie's program, Jamie has so much experience working outside the fitness industry in like weight loss clinics. And he can bring some of that expertise into a fitness centre as well. So he's a great resource. And I can see this changing, like the narrative and the words we use uh, from Michael as well. I think, and I mentioned technology earlier, and I'm, I'm heading up an initiative where we're looking to see how, how can a conversational interface really assist in these situations? How can it change some of the language? How can it change that support 24-7 when somebody isn't seeing the coach? And I think that fitness clubs are just not resourced enough. There's high staff turnover, um, there's strategic planning, which can be more challenging when you want to get bums on, on seats or bums on benches. 
And for a 12-month plan, there's probably that weight loss journey that maybe helps with some sort of engaging platform. And, and that's an initiative we're working on. And I'm inspired by what Jamie's saying. I'm inspired by what Michael's saying. And I think technology, which I've been looking at, is possibly something that can plug into that to enhance it and that. So if anybody does want to get in touch with that, we're piloting later this year uh, for that. And, and that's got to deliver as well. And I think what Michael said about, you know, you get better retention or more people in or you get your money back, I think that's a really good idea too because these different approaches need to be trialled and when you see it, you probably won't turn back. And I think it's those rewards. And we're looking at how do we build rewards in for trainers and clubs that say, oh, if I don't talk about shredding and I talk about health and better mood and all this stuff, then I see those improvements. So if anybody wants to make contact, I'd love to chat with you. And I'll be chatting with Jamie and Michael about this afterwards too. So thanks. So this leads me into my, my second question, which is technically technology orientated. So let's move away from obesity for a moment, or are we really doing that? And this question I directed towards a panel of experts in Singapore recently at the FIT Summit, which was hosted by Ross and Blair Campbell. Mental health issues and suicide rates are escalating. We know that exercise plays a pivotal role to help combat the issue. We encourage individuals to exercise in groups, in classes, and to go on local walks and runs. Yet in the same breath, we are now encouraging our clients and our community, who aren't our clients, to download the latest exercise apps, to download the latest food plan apps. We are encouraging them to work out on their own in a non-supportive environment. Do you think as the industry that we are contradicting our message in order for a financial return on technology? Well, I'll let me jump in. Um, as uh, someone who's practiced psychology for 45 years who uh, helped structure the health coach certification, behavior change certifications, the American Psychology for American Council on Exercise, who works with physicians' offices uh, coast to coast and teaching them uh, patient experience. Uh, I'll tell you this. We know that uh, the uh, soul, solo device uh, experience um, produces loneliness. And amongst adolescents, for example, who are just steeped in their devices, anxiety and depression are increasing. So I think we have to be very careful. If we're building a um, support group with these apps and there's feedback, if that's positive feedback, and it's monitored, probably not creating a great deal of difficulty. I would certainly feel a lot better if this was directed by a mental health professional in conjunction with a health coach, a weight loss coach, a fitness trainer, uh, who was behind it. It would make me feel a whole lot better if this was a friend or family member of mine. Otherwise, just giving someone an app and saying, go to it, um, I think is asking for a difficulty along uh, in the mental health uh, arena. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm happy to jump in there. Just uh, over the weekend, I listened to someone who's had a, made a huge difference in uh, weight loss and work in that area, uh, a guy called Jeff Jowett. In, uh, in Australia, and he's now introduced a walk and talk program to help connect people because I think helping people not just get control of the weight, but connecting people belly to belly are really good things that fitness people can do to help people deal with mental health issues. And as Michael said, 
you know, loneliness is a chronic disease in itself, you know. Uh, and uh, so if, if people, if fitness clubs and, and uh, professionals can get people connected belly to belly, and it could well be just we're going for a walk together, you know, a walk and talk. It can make a huge difference and give people a sense of connection. Uh, and uh, that can be part of their weight loss journey as well. Matt. Yeah, I think a couple of things. Once again, I heard Michael's really hit on, you know, what is that emotional or mental health experience for somebody? Um, and we have data here in Australia that, that a third of you know people experiencing obesity may have um, depression or, or depressive symptoms and that. So you can't sort of separate those two. And we have strong data on the, the mood-elevating effects of um, nutrient-rich food uh, as well. And I'm biased to get about that, obviously. But it's that how we care for somebody's mood and the, and the social support and do that in the right way. Um, and I think technology uh, and that social interface and connection really has potential there done the right way. Because we're at that stage where we've there's this thing called the quantified self where we've got so much data coming at us. Here's your heart rate, here's your steps, here's your calorie burn, here's your sleep hours and all this sort of stuff. And I think people are overwhelmed for that. So... I mean, essentially what we're trying to do now is piece together the most relevant, actionable insights. And, and here's a vision. What if that could actually inform um, the fitness trainer? What if it could inform the dietitian they work with? What if it could inform the mental health professional as well so that they're all on the same team so no matter where somebody turns, they're going to get that buddy and cheerleader supporting them. Um, and that's something I'm really passionate about and we're looking at in this initiative to see how we can unite people because I think it's that uniting of the fitness industry that actually is going to make a difference. won't happen today, tomorrow, but thoroughly worthwhile doing for, for health and actually bottom line, you know, retention as well. So it can nail all those things. Sounds fantastic. I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, just add, I'll just add one other thing. I feel so strongly about this loneliness issue connected to these apps that you can get on your own that it would be wonderful to see a serious app that was structured just like prescription medication. In order to get this app, we need to know who are you socially connected to? Who is your accountability partner? The addition, Additionally, back to the, the let's go for a walk and talk and, and so forth. There are people of size who are uncomfortable doing that. We need to have coaches who know how to ask the question, what are you thinking that's making you uncomfortable about going for a walk with four other people? And until you hear their limiting thinking and their predictions of how they're going to be judged and how you can deal with that, they're not ready to go for the walk. Mm. You know, it sounds like to me, to be quite honest with the three of you, we need to organise um, a conference that is related around obesity and behaviour, um, you know, behaviour problems and that. I mean, how interested would you guys be in putting something like that together for our industry? Sounds good to me. Come in. Yeah. <laughs> I do all that. I mean, really, this is a change of a change of thinking, a change of a change. It's a change of mindset, you it know, is. and approach yeah. for the fitness industry. I mean, yeah. it is, Matt. You know, I mean, let's let's face it. There, we're all passionate about what we do, but there's also a great deal of us out there that don't have the tools to tackle this issue at the moment. And perhaps what that's that's what we need to do. We need to organise perhaps a six or an eight hour 
you know, full day event where it is just about how how to help other gym owners and other fitness professionals so that they can then go out and help um, our obese uh, people out there. Look, before we close the podcast today, Matt, you had some incredible stats at the start of our podcast. Could I ask you, please, just to go over those again for us? Yeah, look, certainly in Australia, and there's an organisation called the Obesity Collective. Um, so please Google the Obesity Collective. It's um, involving some politicians, some health funds, uh, academia, uh, and that I'm not directly involved in it. But they're looking at changing that narrative. Uh, and the stats they came up with last week is 900,000 people have become obese in the last three years. It's going to be 40% obesity in 10 years. It's costing $11 billion. So we've never seen before this level of escalation, particularly in the, the young people that are coming through in their 20s, uh, millennials and young as well and we've got a real opportunity to to make and as this is the dietitian in me to make our interaction with a client in the gym perhaps be the last diet they ever try aside from the language of diet be the last fitness experience they ever start because I'll continue it for life and I, I think that's what's exciting but these figures should shock a lot of people into thinking we need to work this in a different way and I need to put up my hand and say can I get some expert assistance because that unity and teamwork I think is where it's all going get the results thank you so obesity chronic illness and mental health or deeply sensitive subjects spoken about today on the gym owners business podcast i would love to pick up this topic again in a larger and, and a live forum perhaps at a, an event coming up later on in the year um, I know that Matt, Michael and Jamie will continue their conversations long after this podcast is over. But I'd like to thank you each today, our panellists, for your input. And I, as I said, thank you very, very much. I know how hard it is to get all of us together. So please thank you to Matt O'Neill, Michael Mantel and Jamie Hayes today discussing obesity, chronic illness and mental health. Please feel free to contact any of our guests today via their details, which will be dropped into the bottom of our podcast. Thank you again, gentlemen, for your time today. Hello, this is Robert Capuccio, the Director of Coaching for the Institute of Motion. So the question is, what is it that health clubs can do to deal with the growing obesity crisis? And I believe that question is so large and complex. People can make an argument that in some cases it's unfair, but just because it's unfair does not make it any less critical. And we have to be open to at least dialoguing about this because it has not only profound implications for the growing obese population, but for our industry as a whole, not just in how we deal with obese people, but how we deal with people in general, who we are for them and who they are for us. And I think one of the most significant yet largely discounted elements of human behavior change is the effect that environment has on us. So the first one is environment. So in the United States, this, this is a good example because I, I think it reflects the abysmal statistics and rather discouraging statistics around human behavior. 97% of everyone who has bypass surgery or, or a little bit over that number actually develops new blockages within just a couple of years. So a while back, Dr. Dean Ornish, taking a look at this and being quite perplexed by these stats, conducted a study consisting of about 194 patients. And these patients needed bypass surgery, but instead of having them go through bypass surgery, he put them through an experiment where one group would get all of the normal interventions 
that people in this situation get. So they, they're given information and guidance on how to quit smoking, how to adapt. Um, back then, it was low-fat diet. Where, and then you have a control group who was given you know, no interventions at all, just reporting you know, back on the results, which were none, by the way. And another group was just given stress reduction techniques like yoga, meditation, and put into a support group where they could talk about their challenges and what they're going through with people who were in the same exact situation participating in the study. Well, three years after the study, Dr. Dean Ornish found that 77% of the patients that were put into the support group maintained lifestyle changes, and that is compared with what the numbers usually are, nothing short of extraordinary. And, and I think when you take a look at these numbers, National Institute of Health puts out pretty much the same stats on weight loss. 97% of everyone who says that their goal is to lose weight, either fail to lose the weight or keep it off for a span of five years. And I think traditionally, you would look at these people and go, what is wrong with 97% of the people? Where in coaching, uh, appreciative inquiry looks at what's right with the 3% of the people that actually do succeed. And there are a lot of variables, and there's a lot of ways you can look at that. But if you want it to be ruthless and break it down to the lowest common denominator, it is habits. And a lot of times with habits, where we go wrong is we make the mistake of going too big. And if, if this morning, um, I was in a meeting, a very large meeting with Sports Singapore out here in Singapore, what a coincidence, and one of the themes of the meeting is if you want to go big, think small. Small is big, and that is absolutely correct when it comes to habits. So one of the things that we could offer is community. I, I think a lot of people who are obese feel very uncomfortable in the gym for a lot of valid reasons, and no matter how we frame those reasons, it doesn't put us in their position, and I don't think it helps much. And, and I know that you know me having physical deformities when I was a child, going into the gym was brutal, and, and I almost did not do it. So maybe a group exercise class, not around exercise, but maybe around the lowest common denominator, around group support, where people can go in there and just talk about the prospect of exercise. And I, I know that sounds insane because we're an industry of diehard exercise enthusiasts. You don't talk about exercise. It's almost like Fight Club. You do exercise. But deep breathing and meditation exercises to mitigate the, the stress hormone effect on behavior and the anxiety of even walking into that environment and from there being allowed to work within an organically developing culture within our facility where they can converse with one another, get support from one another and safety as well, and then make micro decisions with one another, I think might be extremely helpful. And the other component of this is when somebody comes into the health club or the gym, and this is not an accusation because I know a lot of you do not do this or you definitely do not do this intentionally, Maybe the overall purpose shouldn't be to sell them a membership, but to help them make a decision, any decision that initially gets them started and try to put ourselves in the framework 
where, no, you cannot have what we really want you to have for us or what we think you should have, but you can have what you truly want. And we will do it on your terms and your pace and maybe engage in a little bit more motivational interviewing and maybe a little bit less conventional selling. I personally, my bias is that that will not decrease but increase the probability of making a sale because it will respect autonomy. People do not like to be coerced into decisions and there are two types of decisions. There are controlled and autonomous and autonomous decisions seem to not only have, I think, greater commitment initially, but the research shows greater long-term adherence where controlled, whether you're trying to inspire and reward or threaten people or point out the consequences, doesn't seem to have as much engagement, surprise, surprise. And it doesn't seem to hold up in terms of long-term adherence and has a higher level of recidivism, which is not what we're looking for. And even if somebody's not gonna join the gym today, you know, in, in the age of apps, there's an app for everything. What can we do to support them and keep in touch with them and provide them resources to be a little bit more resourceful in making the micro changes that will lead them to bigger decisions and maybe joining a health club a little bit later down the road if they're absolutely not ready now. And, and I think, you know, if, if we can have those resources and, and not believe that all support must live within our four walls, I mean, think about the potential of that, about supporting people, creating a loyal base of, of customers that feel that we truly care and we're offering valid, viable resources, even though they're not coming into the gym. Think about the future implications for that, where you walk into our facility, you're going to get a level of help whether you join the facility or not. It's just a matter of whether you're gonna get good, better, or best. How you engage with us is up to you. And I think that's critical because you know, we have a belief, or at least I had a belief, that if somebody walks into the club, they're ready to join, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to make sure that happens. And you know, sometimes that really works out, and other times I wonder how many people that I push prematurely, and not only did they not join my gym, but I interfered in their decision to join any gym. Because if you take a look at the trans-theoretical model of change, there are a few reasons why people might walk into a gym, even if they're absolutely not ready that day. And no matter what level of change they're at, especially the obese population, it took a lot for them to walk into the gym. So if you sit in front of me, I'm gonna help you no matter what. It, it's just a matter of what are you prepared to do today? If I lead you to decisions and respect autonomy, my personal experience and my guess would be our, our closing ratios would go up, not down, and the experience for the person at the other end of that table would be enhanced. Um, my, my advice for trainers getting into the fitness industry, <laughs> don't study so much about the human body that you neglect the human being that resides within it. With all your studying on functional anatomy, physiology, and nutritional sciences, which are all critical, there needs to be a little bit of a study of psychology, about coaching, behavior change, and we need to cultivate some intrinsic factors like empathy. And I'm not saying we feel for people, but we feel with them, which is deeper, it's more pervasive, it's more beneficial, 
and a lot of times our assumptions are deterrence. Let, let me just let me just share something, you know, really fast. I hope I'm not going over my time here, but there, there is there is someone out there who I have a ton of respect for, and her name is Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, and she wrote the book The Deepest Well. And there's an excerpt I want to read you from The Deepest Well. And she's citing doctors Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda and the data that they reported from 17,421 people involved in what's now referred to as the ACE study, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And in this, I'm reading, quote, Folletti, one of the researchers, was excited by the outcomes. But the high dropout rate was puzzling. Hmm, does that sound familiar to anyone listening to this? Now, now, this gets interesting. If it had been the patients who were still early in the process, the attrition would have been understandable. After all, the fasting regimen they committed to was challenging. But the strange part was that the dropout rate was highest among the most successful patients, the ones who had stuck with it the longest and seen the best results. Just as they were reaching their ideal weights, when they should have been celebrating their hard-won goals, these successful patients suddenly disappeared. Now, is that interesting to you? Because to Nadine Harris, that was extraordinarily interesting and very perplexing, as it was to Vincent Folletti. And by, by interviewing some of these people, particularly the, the story of Patty in this study, what he found out is that a disproportionately high percentage of these people who were overweight in the study and losing extraordinary amounts of weight, and they were literally on the other side of success, and something happened because so many of those people had experienced some form of violent abuse, traumatic abuse, usually sexual abuse as a child. And Patty, who had completely transformed her physical health and her physical appearance, she was a nurse, and one of her patients commented on how attractive she was and flirted with her, and it triggered her back to the incident that caused her obesity in the first place. And that was... Oh, sadly, in her case, um, molestation by um, one of her immediate family members. And so for her, subconsciously, becoming overweight, um, obese even, was a way to prevent anyone it, it, from ever finding her attractive and harming her or abusing her again. So in her case, being obese was not her problem. It was her solution to a much bigger, much more traumatic problem. Imagine us sitting in front of her and going, well, Patty, you've just got to be more motivated. You know, you just, you just got to commit. You don't want it badly enough. Just stop snacking. Use some discipline. Can you imagine having that conversation with this person? And I cannot. And, and that's the point. I think a lot of our attribution errors, they're not only false which stop us from connecting and prescribing with any precision. They're also very damaging and they can keep more people out of our industry than invite than we invite in. And so that would be my advice to a brand new trainer. Yes, study all the areas that you're passionate about because they're critical, but maybe first start with to create a frame of primacy around human behavior. And, and empathy and understanding that sometimes 
the things that our clientele, our members struggle with are not as cut and dry as we tend to believe.